0: Hello, my name's Larry Sadman here in Victoria, B.C., Canada. Welcome to Discovering Jazz, where you and I discover this great music, old and new, together. Thanks to Peterborough Independent Podcasters for hosting this podcast. Are any of you out there in podcast land familiar with the concept of the bellwether? I wasn't, until about 15 years ago when I read a book by science fiction writer Connie Willis called Bellwether. The theme was how trends get started, and the protagonist is a scientist trying to figure out how hair bobbing became so popular in 1922. I guarantee you it's not as boring as it sounds. The person who seems to be a leader or at least a leading indicator of a future trend, is called a bellwether, named after the sheep who other sheep seem to follow. According to this Connie Willis book, it's usually not the smartest or most dynamic sheep, but one that seems to have one foot in the follower mentality and another foot in the leader mentality, so that they have some kind of credibility which encourages the others to follow them. In other words... The bellwether can't be too far ahead of the pack, or no one will follow them. My interest here is why certain tunes or songs get selected by jazz musicians to become jazz standards, while others don't. And there seem to be certain musicians who take the leadership in that, functioning as bellwethers. There are also bellwethers in terms of styles of jazz or trends within jazz, but for this episode that's not going to be my main focus. My nomination for chief bellwether designation for deciding which tunes became jazz standards is Miles Davis. Now I know that this is arguable. Some saying he simply attached himself to other bellwethers and others saying he was too far ahead of everybody else to be a true bellwether. Here's a good tune to start with to introduce that bellwether concept. Dear old Stockholm, Miles Davis. Davis on Blue Note Records from 1952 with Jackie McLean on alto sax, J.J. Johnson trombone, Gil Coggins on piano, Oscar Pettiford bass, and Kenny Clark on drums. That tune is a traditional Swedish folk song called Varmaland, titled here as Dear Old Stockholm. It was a big hit for Miles Davis in 1952, and that's the version that you just heard. Then he recorded it for Columbia in 1956 on the Roundabout Midnight album, and suddenly everybody was recording it. There have since been about 150 recordings of that tune, and It's in the real book, which is the book used by jazz students as a guide for jazz jams. Now, I consider Miles Davis to be a bellwether because while he's not usually the first person to record a particular tune, he had a knack for choosing songs other people recorded and putting them forth in a way that called attention to it and led others to also want to record it. And when later jazz artists recorded it, they would emulate his version of the tune. Here's a bit of one of the first recordings of the original tune from
1: 1912 by Joel Mossberg.
0: Now it would be nice to think that the genius Miles Davis did all this incredible folk song research and found this song, decided that it would make a great jazz piece, so he recorded it. But that's not usually the way that bellwethers work. Something or somebody else usually does the creating, they decide it's worth following, and their instincts turn out to be right on. In this case, the creator was Stan Getz who first arranged it and recorded it when he was staying in Stockholm a year before Miles Davis recorded it. No doubt Miles was influenced by that recording. Let's hear that lovely Stan Getz version where he is backed by some Swedish musicians.
1: Ha 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 ha.
0: From 1951, the inspiration for that tune that has been considered a Miles Davis staple, Dear Old Stockholm. Please don't think that I'm in any way putting Miles Davis down for the fact that so often the tunes he made famous were inspired by earlier versions. The fact that he had something that led people to notice these tunes, where they hadn't noticed them before, is no doubt an impressive quality. And he probably has done more for popularizing and expanding jazz than any other musician, except maybe for Louis Armstrong. I'm going to stay with talking about Miles Davis' as bellwether, but a pitch could also be made to call pianist Ama Jamal the real bellwether, who, by finding, then introducing tunes that later became standards, exhibited that quality even more so than Miles. I might make that pitch in part two of bellwethers in jazz, but for now, let's just say that so many of the Broadway and show tunes that have become standards are ones that Miles picked up by listening to Amma Jamal recordings. Then after Miles recorded them, others picked them up. Here's one example. The movie version of Silk Stockings opened in 1955, and one of the tunes was Cole Porter's All of You. Amma Jamal recorded it three months later. Then in 1956, Miles Davis... And there were a lot of other versions around the same time as Jamal's before Miles Davis recorded it. Mel Torme, Modern Jazz Quartet, George Shearing, Jonah Jones. So I don't think one can necessarily say that Miles Davis inspired the 300 or so recordings that have been made of that tune. But the fact that it was on his very popular album, Roundabout Midnight from 1957, no doubt influenced a few players. Rather than play any of those earlier versions, including the one by Miles, I thought I'd take this opportunity to find a fairly recent version by somebody totally unfamiliar to me. Her name is Debbie Poryes, P-O-R-Y-E-S, and she's from California. This is a tribute to Hank Jones, a pianist who also recorded it. From 2017, all of you, the Debbie Poryes Trio. Debbie Porius Trio from 2017 with Peter Borsche on bass and David Rokic drums. Cole Porter's All of You. A tune that was popularized by Miles Davis and by Amma Jamal, as well as Sinatra, Mel Torme, Hank Jones, and a few others, any of who could be considered bellwethers in jazz. Which is the theme of today's program, mostly focusing today on those leadership qualities jazz musicians have found in Miles Davis? Miles Davis was considered to be a leader in the invention of something referred to as modal jazz, where very few chords are used and improvisations would often be done over one or two chords. His Kind of Blue album was very much a bellwether for modal jazz, and the tune So What? was considered a classic example. Now, I've played that tune a few times on on these podcasts, uh, and also the marvelous Davis solo, uh, so I think this time I'm going to play another version of So What?, as there have been uh, a few hundred recordings of it. This one was put out a year after the Kind of Blue album, and I think it's great. Barney Kessel on guitar, with Ray Brown doing some amazing bass, and Shelly Mann on drums. Kessel Trio. So What represented a turn away from the complex chord progressions of the bebop era. Miles Davis's friend, the arranger Gil Evans, a Canadian, had introduced Miles to using modes in his arrangement of I Love You Porgy from the 1958 Porgy and Bass album, in which uh, he simply gave Miles Davis' a uh, mode to improvise with instead of writing out a set of chord changes. I quote here pianist and teacher Ron Drotos, Davis embraced this approach as a way to return to creating pure melodies during his solos without the harmonic restrictions imposed by a chord progression. The bebop approach of using challenging series of chords was beginning to seem stale to Miles and some of his contemporaries improvising with modes over less chords was a way of keeping the music fresh for them. They considered it a challenge to keep coming up with interesting melodic ideas that weren't fed to them by weaving in and out of the chordal structures. So here is that Miles Davis version of I Loves You, Porgy, arranged and conducted by Gil Evans. So for sure, Miles Davis was a bellwether for modal jazz because he knew who to follow, the genius of Gil Evans. And his timing was just right as people were getting exhausted by the complexities of bebop. So he may not have started the trend, but he followed it very well, resulting in others following him. And then just through that, basically setting the trend Even when Miles Davis got it wrong, he was influential. He made changes to a lot of Thelonious Monk tunes, such as Round Midnight and Well You Needn't, and took some of the edge off them. With Well You Needn't, he started on a different note than Monk, so the wild leap that Monk put into the tune at the beginning becomes tamed in the Miles Davis version, and the bridge is very different. The original real book, compiled and used by jazz students used the Miles Davis version. And as a result, a whole bunch of recordings were made using that incorrect melody and changes. Let me play you the Thelonious Monk original version, then follow it with Miles Davis's... Thelonious Monk with Gene Ramy on bass and Art Blakey drums from 1947. Now for the very different Miles Davis version from 1954 on Blue Note. Here it is with Horace Silver on piano, Percy Heath on bass, and again Art Blakey on drums. <laughs> a fine version of Thelonious Monk's William Needn't, but with very different and probably less interesting changes in the original. But Miles Davis being a bellwether, a trendsetter, combined with the fact that this was the version that was used for the original real book, that ended up being the one played at most jam sessions for quite a while. But that's not a pop or Broadway standard, is it? And I said that one of my challenges was to discover if there were certain bellwethers who, simply by recording a tune, uh, made it more likely that it becomes a standard. I explored how Miles Davis in the 50s might have done that with dear old Stockholm. But how about the 80s? Pop rock singer Cindy Lauper co-wrote and recorded a song in 1983 called Time After Time. It was a fairly basic pop song but had a nice 251 sequence that jazz players like and who should discover it in 1985 and do a jazz version of it? Miles Davis. In fact, I think it was the first cover of that tune. Period. Now there are 267 versions of it listed on the Second Hand Songs site, many of them by jazz artists such as Jack dejanet Denny Zeitlin, and Tuck and Patty. I'm actually surprised that Miles Davis maintained his bellwether status after that, though. His version of the tune, only three and a half minutes long on that album called You're Under Arrest, was truly awful. So bad, I don't even want to play it here. It was like pop music. At least that's my opinion. But he redeemed himself three years later when he recorded a live version and stretched it out to about 10 minutes. I love what he does for that tune here. Here it is, the longer and live 1988 version of Cindy Lauper's Time After Time. Miles Davis.
1: I'm mm-hmm. sorry.
0: time after time, Miles Davis, and it looks like I'm running out of time. My last comment regarding Miles Davis's bellwether is the oft-told stories of tunes that he took credit for that he didn't actually write. But somehow he seemed to have the knack for knowing what to steal. And a few like Solar, Blue and Green, Tune Up, and Four have become jazz standards. I'll end with a version of Solar, which was originally written by guitarist Chuck Wayne many years before and found on an old acetate where it was entitled Sunny and later credited to Miles Davis. Here's a version by Montreal pianist Oliver Jones. Next week, more on Bellwethers, including some more Miles Davis, as well as Ahmad Jamal, Bill Evans, J.J. J. Johnson, and even one man you don't think of as a jazz bellwether, but chose so many tunes that jazz musicians later emulated. That's Frank Sinatra. This is Discovering Jazz. I'm Larry Shademan. Bye for now. Taking you home with Oliver Jones. <laughs>